401k advisors want to build a scalable practice, but aren't always sure what to do next. Welcome to Outcomes, the podcast designed to help advisors think, make decisions, and cast a vision to create a business for the future. Here's your host, Ross Marino, financial planner, author, speaker, and CEO of Advisor2x. Welcome to Outcomes, the podcast. Today, I am joined by Rita Robbins, founder and president of Affiliated Advisors, a super OSJ with 45 branches. Rita, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Ross. I'm looking forward to learning how you built the Super OSJ, which goes back to 1994. And as far as we know, you were the first woman-owned Super OSJ. And I'm really looking forward to that story. But before we dive into that, that's not your only business. When we first spoke, you actually said you had another business. And one day you came home from work and you said to your husband, what? Honey, you're never going to believe what I did today. Now, this was 2015, and my husband and I had been married for about 27 years at the time, so he didn't really know what to expect. And I said, I bought a lavender farm. You never even had a backyard. So you're a city girl, you're not a farm girl, and all of a sudden, now you're buying a lavender farm. How on earth did that happen? And actually, I should tell you, I never even saw the farm. Um, uh, One of my advisors who I work with, I have a lot of advisors here in the Midwest, um, called me up and said, hey, how would you like to buy a lavender farm? And took my breath away. And I thought, well, who wouldn't want to own a lavender farm? (laughs) So I said yes right away. And the more we spoke about it, the more uh, it became really clear what the lavender farm was about for both of us. Um, It's a beautiful 33-acre farm in the very northern part of Michigan in a small town called Boyne City that's really a resort community. Uh, I I refer to it as the Hamptons of Michigan. But like so many resort communities, at the end of the season, um, all these wealthy vacationers go home and the people who are left in this town struggle greatly economically. Uh, Most of the employment is centered around tourism and boating and And when everyone goes home at the end of the summer, they're left with not much. So we not only wanted to rescue these beautiful 33 acres and make sure it was not turned into an upscale housing development, but more importantly, we wanted to use this little farm as an economic development engine to help all these small family-owned businesses that were struggling October through May of every year to put food on their table. Did you know this before you purchased the farm? Was that part of the conversation or did you learn this as time went on? Well, uh, we, we sort of had an inkling like everyone does when you're, uh, you know, in a resort community and you and everyone go home at the end of the summer and you never stop to think about the shops and the small businesses that, that essentially have to shut down in the winter because there's just no one walking in through their door and no demand for their products and services. So we wanted to make sure that that farm and that land remained an asset to the community and as an asset to the community, not just that people could come and and share in the beauty. I mean, we grow 26 varieties of lavender on 33 acres, but we really wanted it to be something that gave back to the community more than just the physical beauty of the farm. And this took many forms. We, for instance, work with a very, very, very small family owned bakery who uses our lavender to make shortbread cookies. And we sell 200 dozen of them a week in our shop. And a, an older farmer who's having trouble selling his maple syrup, who then threw, um, you know, a, 
pound or two of, of our lavender in when he boils his sap down. And now we can't keep that lavender maple syrup on the shelf. The same thing with a small family dairy that was going out of business and uh, the children turned it into an ice cream, uh, small ice cream manufacturer, and they make four kinds of ice cream for us. Uh, the same thing with a, a local distiller who wanted to get off the ground and decided to flavor his gin with our lavender. So there's actually, uh, I think almost two or three dozen small businesses that we co-op with in this way. And we provide the raw material, the, the lavender, they provide the finished goods. And then we have um, uh, this you know beautiful agritourism destination and we provide the retail outlet and the online outlet to sell their products year round. As I listen to you explain the farm, it doesn't seem like that much of a stretch from creating a super OSJ where your business is to support other businesses and other people and the real beneficiaries are an end user that you're not necessarily connected with. So it seems like you've created an, e an ecosystem here, kind of like a super OSJ, where you're allowing those business owners to do what they do best, which is sell their products and serve other people. So why don't we spin back to the super OSJ, which also probably started with some type of epiphany moment or conversation back around 1994, where... I'm not even sure I knew what a super OSGA was back in the 1990s, let alone someone who says, I think I'm going to be the first woman-owned super OSJ. You must have had some pretty powerful motivation or vision of that. Or did you just wake up one day and say, I'm doing this? Well, it, it wasn't quite as simple as waking up one day and saying, I'm doing this. But I will tell you that uh, it became obvious very early on to me that I loved working with advisors. You know, I loved working at um, a different level and, and, a, and in some ways, I certainly can't say more complex, uh, but I think of my advisors the same way they think about their clients. So I'm here and my team is here to support them through all types of problems and issues and business building and, uh, you know, so much of which, just like with your clients, is really about a consultative dialogue. So I had actually worked as a wholesaler for 10 years, uh, the first woman wholesaler at Lord Abbott. And I think there were five women wholesalers at this time. I started in 83. And by 1993, I'd been on the road virtually <clears throat> every day of every week of every month for a decade. <clears throat> Excuse me. I love the advisors that I worked with. Uh, but I got pregnant and I uh, woke up after having a uh, beautiful, healthy daughter and thought, I, I just don't want to wake up and not even know what city I'm in anymore and have this beautiful daughter at home. So she was not quite a year old and I resigned and thought I'm going to try to do the stay at home mom thing. And uh, it didn't really work for me or for her. And uh, so I thought, well, what can I do now? And I realized that I just spent 10 years living in advisor's offices. And so I took some of those relationships that I had developed over the years and, um, and started this super OSJ. I mean, it wasn't a super OSJ. It was a handful of advisors. And one of them was kind enough to <clears throat> give me some office space and uh, and and it, it took off from there. So it was uh, it was it was very organic. And uh, I have to say that one of the things that was really uh, helpful was that I had no idea what I was getting into. So my head was not filled with fears and worries and doubts and dilemmas. 
I really just thought, oh, I'm going to get keep doing what I love to do the most, which is working with advisors. I do remember one of the first daunting moments for me, though. It was 94. Not a lot of people were using computers as a main functionality of their day-to-day work, but I do remember having this like big old box of a of a computer. And the first time I got an error message that said contact system administrator, I was I was like in a panic. Who was my systems administrator? <laughs> yes, that's the, the joy of owning a business when you realize I, I am I am the business, but I, I did get I a chuckle. Administrator. <laughs> well, when you said that uh, that you know you didn't know what you were getting into as an entrepreneur, and I thought, well, that's what entrepreneurs do. Because if we actually knew what was coming up down the road, we we probably would be terrified and wouldn't open the businesses <laughs> that we open. So, you know, ignorance is bliss and uh, it's very motivating because it looks like everything's going to be great until your computer says contact systems administrator, and then <laughs> it might get a little right. harder. Well, it, it was sort of a, a deja vu that first uh, day in April 2016 when we were getting ready to open the farm for the season. And uh, my partner and I walked outside and we're like, now what do we do? <laughs> it was just like, literally, we walked out of the farmhouse overlooking these, you know, these beautiful acres and thought we, you know, have, have no idea what we're doing. So here we are now in 2020 as we're recording this. So that gives you many decades of being a super OSJ, building a business, watching the advisory business mature, not just as a wholesaler, but then as a, an entrepreneur. How about you You maybe contrast 20 years ago with today, what you see as being different, and then let's tie into what you see going forward. First. I think the thing that strikes me now is how different the business is than it was in 1994. And yet at its core, essentially, it's the same business. I think in many ways, it's become much more challenging, both for advisors and clients who are confronting complexities, both groups, advisors and and their clients, who are confronting complexities that they never imagined before. Um, you know, I think about my parents who were depression era children uh, and, and some of those lessons stayed with them their whole lives. Uh, I think the same thing will happen, by the way, to the generation like my son, who's 23. This COVID experience will impact how he feels about everything from job security to credit uh, for the rest of his life. So in some ways, it's gotten a lot more complex uh, and there are so many different challenges that we grapple with now that we didn't then. Uh, I think of things like technology, uh, compliance, um, and the, the just sheer array of solutions that an advisor can office, offer clients now compared to what was available back in 1994. So there's a, a huge amount of complexities. And for many advisors, especially the ones that I work with, uh, there are the complexities and challenges of, of, of being an entrepreneur and being a business owner. So I think those are some uh, challenges that have uh, increased again in scope, complexity. Um, and then on the positive side, I think there's a lot more solutions out there that can make so many aspects of our lives so much easier. Just communicating with clients has taken on, especially in this year, a very different context tone and format than ever before. And I can remember when I wanted to communicate with my advisors at the beginning, I would um, 
print out labels and stuff envelopes. And that was like a big part of what I spent my nights and weekends doing. And now I get to sort of push a button and I can blast out an email to 30,000 people. I mean, that that's a small example of how I feel the complexities and the challenges, but also the solutions have expanded. Yeah. And how we execute has certainly changed and it has advanced and integrating those technologies is a big part of it. And I'm, I'm certainly a believer that over the next five to 10 years, the advisors and advisory firms that learn how to leverage technology are going to separate from the average advisor out there to the point where I'm not sure how the average advisor ever catches up. So I I think we're in that stage. As an entrepreneur, you're always thinking about where you're going and you're figuring things out. But occasionally something comes up and it's not just a big rock in front of you that you say, we have to overcome this and figure this out. But sometimes you look at things and you realize, I may not have all the information there. It could be a little confusing. Anything you're wrestling with right now that you're still trying to figure out and you're just not sure how it's going to play out? Uh. Well, I think from a business perspective, I've been very, very lucky. And I, I should tell you that uh, a year ago uh, in May, I turned 63. And I think I crossed over some invisible yet um, big barrier. And suddenly people were asking me about my succession plan, which was uh, a little bit surprising and very daunting because, you know, I, I'd run this business. I, I mean, I always had a wonderful team, but pretty much single-handedly since 1994. And there's so many complexities. Uh, you know, we have almost 100 advisors and uh, the type and of practice they have, their business models, uh, highly individualized. Um, each one of them reflects uh, that advisor or team, uh, you know, the way it always does. So, there was a lot going on. Uh, we had uh, uh, staff in three different cities. Uh, we had two different business models, which we can talk about in a moment. So there was a lot. And I had never really thought about like, what's next? I mean, it sort of been there in the back of my mind. But I think like a lot of people, it was one of those issues I procrastinated about. I mean, I knew it was something I had to do something about. But how I was going to deal with it was a the, the great unknown. And I was really fortunate to um, add a a study group of um, super OSJs uh, reconnected with somebody they'd worked with uh, in 2000. And it became almost instantly clear that Tom Ripberger was exactly everything that I had been looking for. And he had these skill sets that I'd never had. He's an, just an amazing uh, executive. I think maybe one of the most talented I've ever worked with. He'd had a successful career um, in building and establishing two huge RIAs. Uh, He'd also been on the broker dealer side and he was younger than I, he was 49. So it seemed like this, you know, just absolutely great. And then we both realized that we needed some, another set of skills that neither of us possessed. And so uh, we were really fortunate to bring on Trisha Qualley as a partner and Trisha just turned 34. Uh, she uh, gr- probably, like my children, grew up with a, a phone in her hand or had a phone in her hand before she could walk. And her expertise is in practice management, technology utilization, and integration. 
and client communication. She'd also been really successful because it's so technology driven. She'd onboarded more than 50 teams of advisors in the last five years. So we had somebody who was just great at transitioning advisors who could help advisors who were older than her, perhaps my age, a little bit younger because her demographics don't skew all that differently from the industry as a whole. And here's this, you know, amazingly brilliant young woman who can come in and so at ease with technology and help all of us adapt, utilize, and integrate technology for more efficient communications, higher profitability, you know, just across an entire, almost there's not one area of our business that has not been impacted and enhanced by technology. I think the younger people have a different mindset with technology that I'm trying to adopt. And that is, is that they think technology first, meaning no matter what's going on, technology is part of their process because it's so integrated with their lives where I think you and I may think, how do we add technology to this? But we're, we're not necessarily thinking right off the bat that technology is integrated into the solution. We're thinking what needs to be done and how do we add tech, where I think they're really from a technology first, where that's just what they do and it's part of it. Have you seen that influence the advisors at your firm and the leadership team? Well, absolutely. First of all, uh, for Tricia, technology is the solution. <laughs> Okay, to your point, right? So, you know, I, I'm not sure I should confess this publicly, but, you know, every time we adapt or implement a new uh, technology system, there's almost a part of me that's fearful, like, oh, no, you know, am I going to get this? Am I going to do like, what if I, you know, I, I, I have a, it's embarrassing to admit, but the truth is that there is some, a great deal of fear and unknown for me surrounding technology, where she Trisha not only feels confident about it, she knows that that is the solution. There is a technology solution for all of the challenges and dilemmas that we face. And what's been really interesting is as firms, uh, whether it's advisor group or, you know, LPL or Raymond James or uh, Merrill Lynch, these firms are spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year in providing technology solutions for their back office, for the advisors, and you know, in some cases for the end user. But if you looked at the uh, inter- the ad- adaptation rate of these technologies, they're not always great. And that's again because the demographics of the industry skew more towards my age than her age. And so the fact that that uh, Trisha is able to actually you know really get down into the trenches with our advisors. And the results have been really, not only has it skyrocketed in terms of adaptation of things like um, mobile digital account opening, but but more importantly, being able to uh, develop and execute a communication strategy with your clients that's technology-based that uh, they've now used with ease. And one of the things that's been very rewarding for me, and it must be extraordinarily rewarding for her, is that like aha moment when the advisor is like, you know, they get it, they see the results and it just seems like, wow, this is so easy. And they thought it was so challenging or they see the end results, which is a higher client engagement, a higher referral rate, um, and, and just more uh, awareness of them and their brand through social media, for instance, is one of the, the places that we've really seen an explosive amount of growth 
because of technology and Trisha's ability to help advisors adapt and implement. And I'm sure the the pandemic has had a wonderful effect on the adoption of technology at your firm, just like everywhere else. And, Mm -hmm. And I confess regularly on the podcast that I was someone who resisted Zoom. And frankly, it's because I didn't want to deal with it. I know the extra steps behind it. So I, I, I'll just be honest about it. I, I had used Zoom. We've done that. I really just didn't want to deal with it. Or I should say, if I, I want to give myself some slack here, I really didn't believe the benefits were worth the effort. Actually, that makes me sound a lot better. So that's what it was, Rita. I didn't think the benefits were, were going to be worth the effort. I wasn't just being a slacker. But as soon as you start doing it, you realize that, even if our clients don't want to turn on the camera, they need to see me. It's that important. They need to not just hear me. They need to see me. They need to connect with me because a phone call cannot connect in the same way that Zoom or a video call can. So I think the pandemic has made a huge difference. Is there anything particular that you think really accelerated at your firm because of the pandemic? Uh, well, obviously, Zoom. Um, and and how we utilize Zoom, uh, I think surprisingly, you know, we uh, have, because we have uh, different offices and we were never all in a centralized location because we have uh, advisors we work with all over the country. We actually just seamlessly were able to work remotely. It just, it just, it, it already was, so to speak. I think the thing that's really been surprising, uh, not so much for myself, but for my advisors, is how easily their clients have adapted to Zoom. So, and and it's not because of clients wanting to see their advisors, but it's because their clients want to stay connected with their families. And so, you know, you know, you can have a I don't, but um, I know, you know, there are advisors who are connecting with clients in their 70s who are pretty adept at this now. It's not that challenging. And they want to see their families. Uh, it's a highly motivating to them to uh, learn how to, you know, walk through how to set up the Zoom. And I think for many of us, um, the pandemic has brought some changes. And I think one of the things that we're very aware of is uh, Zoom fatigue. And so we're very, very, very uh, focused and tight on our meeting time. Uh, as a as a team, uh, but we also have realized that it, it there are some challenges to staying connected. Uh, the same way advisors have these challenges in staying as connected with their clients, um, it, it's really hard when you're in different parts of the country. And we have seven out of our eighteen members are women, most of whom have children. Homeschooling has become you know virtual schooling has become. Uh, really integrated and important part of their lives. So there have been a lot of ways that we've had to adapt. And I think that uh, technology has really helped all of us do a better job of overcoming the obstacles that we're facing during this pandemic. You just mentioned that seven out of eight of your team members are women. And my first thought is that's intentional and that's fantastic. And the second thought is, who's the one guy and what's that like for him? But that, that would be another issue. So first, <laughs> let's talk about what did you go through to say, I want to build a women-led firm? Because that is intentional. 
What are the benefits of that? Do you see some challenges? Talk about creating that. Well, I must say that I was so used to being the only woman in so many of my jobs. I mean, I I still sit on a few industry uh, boards, advisory boards, and I look around the room and I think it this can't be. I I, I it can't just be me and one other woman. You know, it used to just be me, but now it's usually me and one other woman. So I don't know whether, honestly, Ross, it was a very conscious decision on my part to have women. But I'll tell you what was very conscious was that I wanted to find the best person for the job. And so uh, I, I think many of the selection criteria that we look at and that we go through um, fell by the wayside because it didn't matter to me. And so it it turned out, and I can't say accidentally, but I will just say that I always wanted to hire the best person for the job. So uh, the only the only male on our team is is uh, uh, one of my partners, Tom Ripberger, and uh, I. Sometimes you should see our staff meeting. You know, there's like all of the, us women, and then there's Tom. I think that uh, you know, in some ways, he loves it. Uh, I think that we get to challenge him um, and and maybe tease him in a way that he hasn't had before, because having been part of this industry, he was always in the majority. You know, he was that room full of guys that most of us women always felt like we were, whether we were the one or two of uh, women in senior management. So, um, and I think, and he's a hockey coach uh, in Minneapolis and he tells us great stories. So he coaches his son, his two sons, son's teams and his daughter's team. And at the beginning of uh, the season last year, he told us he had this pep talk and he said to the kids, and these are, you know, uh, young teenagers, that it's not about scoring goals. It's about teamwork. It's about making sure that you know who you're passing that puck to. It's about being there, you know, when, when your team members looking around the ice at, at, at you know, who he's going to pass to. It's not about scoring the goal. So it's teamwork. And then the guys get out there and they start trying to sc- score goals. <laughs> and then he, right. he, he's got a, a, I think Sydney's about 11 now. And he gives the girls that same speech. And they go out there and it's all about teamwork. So I think for him, he really appreciates the differences that working with a, an all-women team have been able to bring to him in terms of cooperation, uh, teamwork, and uh, you know, just a very different headset about life and, 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 and work and support. I think women, uh, just it's, it's culturally and, and some might say uh, hardwired, we're just caretakers. We're, we're providers of, uh, of, of nurturing and solutions. And, and that's what we do. So final question, sure. the magic wand. Ah. <laughs> if you could take this magic wand and you could wave it and change anything in the world, what would you change, Rita? <sighs> so many things. I really have to narrow it down to just one. Yes. And it can't be related to the pandemic or a virus. Uh, if I had one one thing that I could change with the magic wand, it would be uh, economic parity for women. You know, that we have, that women all over the world get paid equally for their labor and that we have the same access to opportunity and, and, and wealth and, um, and, and power. Great way to finish, Rita. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Ross. It's been delightful. Thank you for listening to Outcomes. Subscribe now to be notified when new episodes become available.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Advisor 2X. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service providers with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.